Good evening to you all. So here we are. It's our, our last evening together. The Buddha has this image of groups of humans that come together and then separate. He says they're, they're like birds that flock and congregate to a tree and then at a certain point away they go in separate directions. So our time for that is coming up. But we do have this uh, evening together and we have tomorrow morning so it would be wise to take full advantage of it. The end of a retreat can be a very uh, sweet and profitable time. So one of the things that can be beneficial is to actually seal in some of the learning that you've had while you're here. To actually go through a little bit of process to help you become conscious of some of the things that you've noticed and some of the things that you've learned while you've been practicing together these last days. The Buddha frequently used reflection or encouraged people to reflection about their experience, which basically seems to mean thinking about pertinent topics intentionally. So using that capacity of thought, which is so often wild and distracting and unconscious or semi-conscious, to use that capacity for thought in a way where we're actually calling upon that capacity of mind in a way that's intentional and focusing on particular um, topics. So I think it would be good to do some reflection on the retreat. So I'm going to guide you through a series of questions that I'd just like you to turn over in your mind as I ask them, and then I'll leave a little bit of time after each one for you to kind of see what see what comes up for you, if anything. And maybe on some of these there won't be anything in particular, but maybe some of them there will be. So you can relax and close your eyes. I know you can do that. I've seen you do that recently. So the first thing is, what were the assumptions or expectations or hopes that came with you when you started this retreat? What were you hoping for or what were you thinking was going to happen? Or what were you assuming this was going to be about? Just see what comes to mind.
And now closing with that piece. What actually happened? What was it actually like? Was it harder? Was it easier? Was it way different? Did your expectations fall into alignment with what the actual experience was, or was it different? And if so, in what way? Okay, closing with that. What did you learn here about how to practice? As you were working with your mind and trying to implement the instructions and keep yourself present, What did you notice and what did you learn? What worked? And now closing with that, what questions remain for you about the practice or about how to work with your mind? And now knowing what you know about metta and this quality of mind, how do you imagine that its further development would benefit you? How can uh, you imagine what it would be like for this quality of mind to be 
spontaneously available to you or easily available to you when you called upon it. And then just closing with this exploration, just feel in your body what there is to feel. And I'd suggest that soon, like within the next 24 hours if you can, that you actually do some writing or exploration along this line and make some of your present understanding conscious. Just as another way to seal in some of the the understanding that you've gained in being here. Okay, now you can uh, open your eyes. Welcome back. One of the main question that always comes up at the end of a retreat is, how do I take it home? How do I take it home? And to answer that question, you really have to do some investigation about what it is. And so the exercise that we just went through was designed in part to help you identify for yourself what it is that you would be looking to pursue. And having determined for yourself how... uh, beneficial or how important that thing is will give you the information that you need about how to prioritize it in your life. Because that's not a question that a teacher can ever tell you. That's for you to explore and to to become conscious of. And when that piece of motivation, that clarity around Uh, priorities and life priorities becomes clear then the rest of it is just means right the rest of it is just ways to implement that priority so I'll say a little bit more uh, about resources and practical things in a minute but maybe we should talk first about leaving retreat and that that whole process what that's like so there's a few things to know which are common when people leave retreat one is 
that you've been away from stimuli for a number of days now and your minds have gotten pretty quiet. And so one of the things that means is that the doors of perception, as Aldix Huxley would say, the doors of perception are pretty clean. They're pretty open. So that means that your senses are sensitive right now. You may have noticed some of this, for instance, um, how easily you taste the food and how good the food feels or how, how you really notice the feeling of uh, warmth when you wash your hands and right, how, you, how the, you notice the texture of the sheets when you climb into bed, that kind of thing. The hearing is more acute than normal. You feel maybe feel your body more easily than normal. These are all byproducts of the mindfulness and concentration that you've developed over the last number of days. So things may be unusually vivid for a while. And over time this effect of, will fade. It, it'll fade relatively quickly for, for most people. But in the meantime you're going to go out into a world that's pretty loud and pretty busy. And you're definitely going to notice that. Because you haven't been loud and you haven't been <laughs> busy. <laughs> and it's going on at a, at a speed out there that um, you're going to definitely take notice of. So, since you've developed concentration, one of the other things that tends to happen is emotional states can become magnified as well. So, just as in the same way you may have experienced while you're here on retreat, like very strong states of, say, anger or sadness or uh, metta or compassion, these have felt intense and strong and vivid. This kind of vividness of emotional states can be present when you leave retreat for a while too. So there can be a certain amount of, what would the psychologist call, emotional label, labality, what's it called? Labile? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you may be labile for a while. <laughs> okay, so it's not to worry about it. This is like a normal common thing and it, it wears off. But it, but it does point to the fact that for a while at least you probably want to minimize excessive stimulation. So you probably don't want to hop right back into full dose cell phone, uh, computer, TV, radio, right away. It, it won't be pleasant. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it won't be the enjoyment that you, you may have thought it would be at certain points in this retreat when you were pining for those things. So, you know, I would just give it like a little, a little, a little bit. Experiment with a little bit to the extent you, you need to and see what happens. And you may find that that's enough for now. So that's important. So it would be good for the in the same kind of way if you can find a way to take uh, some quiet time, some extra time in relatively quiet circumstances as you transition back. That would be good. I would say um, 
if you've left somebody at home, if you have a partner you're, you're going back to, um, you don't want to be too precious about this point. Because <laughs> you've been gone for a few days and they think you've been on vacation. <laughs> they don't know how hard you've been working while you've been here. <laughs> they think you've been on vacation. So, you know, you don't want to, oh, I'm so sensitive. Honey, if you can help it. This is just what I've learned <laughs> over that <coughs> personally. So, um, so you want to thank people for taking care of the home fires if that's what they've done. That would be a nice meta thing to do that would serve you very well. So you're also going to come up with the whole process of people asking you how it was. How was it? Well, you just went through a process. Of okay, so the important thing to know about this is it's a social question. <laughs> Most of the time it's a social question. You know what I mean? It's like when you meet people in the grocery store, they say, how are you? And you say, good, how are you? Good. <laughs> you know, they're not really asking you, how are you? <laughs> right? So this, how was it? That's, it's usually that same kind of question. And it usually calls for that same kind of response. And the reason I say that is sometimes in the, in the enthusiasm of coming off retreat, you want to tell everybody all about it. right? And you may notice, if, if you can't resist this impulse to tell them everything about it, that they, their eyes widen and they slowly start backing away and reaching for their keys. <laughs> Okay, because they think you're proselytizing them. So it's usually a social question. Now, you may have particular friends or colleagues or something for whom it's more than a social question. And so if that's the case, then that's probably, uh, uh, let's go to the coffee shop and (laughs) have some tea or coffee and sit down and I'll, I'll tell you about it kind of conversation. Right, that's a different kind of conversation for best effect. And then, of course, one of the things that you're going to be up up against is, in a basic kind of way, what you've been through is, what's the word, ineffable? There are certain things that you can say, certain things that you can describe, but you don't have the ability to really put into words and tell another person exactly what it was and what it meant. You know, you can imagine some of these conversations because I've had some of these these conversations myself with people. And then I just had this, you know, massive attack of doubt and my mind was just <laughs> swirling. <laughs> you know, I couldn't land on anything and then restlessness came along. And, you know? If they have no context for this, it's going to be hard for, hard, hard for them to get it. Let, let alone the true meaning of, of what you're saying when you say something like, all of, I, all of a sudden I knew uh, with certainty in the depths of my heart that this was the, the right way to go and I could feel my heart uh, open in a way it hasn't before. They're not going to understand from the description what that was for you, just so you know. But they may be able to tell that something happened by how you are, which is the best way to test what's been going on for people. 
So another important piece is you should expect your experience to change. So we've been here in this quiet, secluded environment. We've been doing basically nothing but this and sleeping and yogi job for the last five days. So you've built up some concentration, so now you probably notice that your mind is generally more cooperative than it was at the beginning. Not always, but generally a little bit more on board with it. It's easier to form the phrases, it's easier to hold the images. You know, that's partially a byproduct of concentration. Concentration is supported by the circumstances of seclusion. And when you leave here, you're not going to have seclusion anymore. And what that means is how your practice feels is going to be different. One of the the best Dharma instructions I ever got, although I hated it at the time, was when I went to my first long weekend retreat with Stephen and Andrea Levine. I remember this very clearly. Kirkland, Washington. And my mind was really, it was not happy when when I got there. And it was not happy for most of it. But towards the end, it really did get kind of concentrated. Things got very vivid and I could say, I don't know what's happening, but something's happening. This is like, this is really different. And with that sense of seclusion came a sense of peace, a sense of ease, a sense of being present for the first time in a long time. I thought, God, this is, this is amazing. Now it's like this. And so and as part of the instructions in leaving, Stephen said, Notice the mind's tendency to hold on to things and to cling, to want the present experience, if it's pleasant and satisfying, to to continue. Notice as you go out in the car and you start to go home, and in the next day or two, watch the mind attempt to cling to the concentration that it's generated. And my mind went, no, (laughs) no, you're telling me it's going away. I don't want it to go away. What was the point of this whole thing if it's going away? But there is a point to it. Even though the concentration will ebb unless you continue doing this kind of practice in this kind of seclusion for these kinds of hours a day. You've opened up the pathways. You've opened up the pathways. You've learned the technique. You've learned the potential of the technique. And you've learned what states are in your range, what states are part of your innate potential. Because any experience that you had here, any experience of opening, any moments of metta, any moments of of compassion, any moments of uh, self-acceptance, of patience, of renunciation, of resolve, and all the rest of this, this is coming from your own mind. This is your own mind's, meaning heart-mind's experience. This is yours. This is part of your range. And if this is part of your range now, this can be further developed and further opened in the future. This could, can be just the beginning of a process of 
incrementally gaining more and more understanding about how to how to work with the heart and mind to open them further. So the concentration will ebb. But your relationship to the practice is stronger and the next time you go on retreat you won't pick up where you left off. I'm telling you that now to save you suffering in the future because we would really like that. We would really like to come into the next retreat uh, starting at our high point of the previous retreat. That would be ideal. And anybody who's been practicing for any length of time soon realizes that that's a complete and utter trap and will make you suffer. So remember the primary principle of of Buddhist practices. We never criticize or judge what's actually happening. That's all wasted motion. We just connect with what's actually there, which is plenty to work with, the actual facts of the matter in the present. That's where we are. That's where we work. So even though you won't pick up where you left off, it does become easier. Uh, One of the images I I once heard for this is it's a little bit like uh, when you come back on retreat, there's leaves in the gutter, but you you can get them out a lot easier (laughs) than uh, you would have previously. You have the equipment to more quickly move through some of the hindrances and some of the real slogging that you had to do to start this whole process up. So if you want to continue to do this practice, do this bhavana, you have to have a plan. So sometimes people ask, how much should I sit a day? And usually what I'll say is, well, how much are, are you willing to commit to sitting a day? Don't don't ask me what the what the uh, what I think you should do. Tell me what you're willing to do, and then do that. What are you, do you actually think you're willing and able to do? And then make a commitment to that. If it if it's 15 minutes a day, make a commitment to it. And then how do you get it to happen? Well, how do you get things to happen that you have to get done in other parts of your life. Right? How do you get to how do you get to work on time? How do you catch the airplane? How do you make sure you don't run out of food? Well you plan for it, right? In some cases you actually literally schedule it. And in order to schedule it, of course, since our lives tend to be very full, we might have to figure out what goes. Right? what we're willing to displace, what we're willing to let go of, at least partially in order to carve out that particular amount of time in order to do something that we've decided as a priority, if we have indeed decided that it is. So let's go on to uh, books online offerings, uh, retreat centers, and sanghas. And so this next piece will be mostly informational. I'll start with books. And I'll put post this book list um, later so you don't have to write it down. 
So Jean, you'll have to forgive me because it's just the name of the book and the author. So I don't have the publisher, I don't have the, the year of publication, I don't have any of the things that a good librarian or editor would have there. But you can find them with what I'm telling you. So, Okay. Um, so the Prima book I'd recommend about the Brahma Viharas is Loving Kind, called Loving Kindness by Sharon Salzberg, which is a, a classic and deservedly so. So it goes through it. It talks about all four of the Brahma Viharas. It gives uh, instructions about how to practice. It suggests phrases. It tells a lot of stories that illustrate Dharma principles related to these practices. It gives some um, supporting practices too, like forgiveness practice and gratitude practice and, and that. So it's really quite a wonderful, wonderful book. Another book I'd recommend is called Compassion by Christine Feldman, who is one of the guiding teacher at Gaia House in England and is a, another long-term practitioner who sometimes teaches at IMS. She has uh, deep concentration herself. And then the third book is a book um, that's quite accessible. It's called Awakening Joy by James Barraz. So when you first look at the cover of this book, you might think, oh, I don't know. It looks kind of, I don't know. I shouldn't say this on tape. <laughs> anyway, it's not a cover I would spontaneously find appealing, right? It seems a little bit too much like, you know, 50 days to, uh, you know, a size four or something. But, <laughs> but it's, not, it's not really like that. It's actually quite dharmic dharmically based, but it has a lot of um, good stories and, and good exercises. And, and the whole title, Awakening Joy, is, is basically his description of how you would go about awakening that factor in the mind, taking to heart Buddha, the Buddha's uh, encouragement to incline the mind towards joy, incline the mind towards wholesome states. So it includes things in there about the Brahma-viharas and um, but also includes things like gratitude and appreciation and reflecting on your wholesome qualities and, and that kind of thing. So those are all three. And he has an online course for that as well um, that a lot of people I know have taken and have felt is quite beneficial. So if, if your mind tends to roll around in the doldrums of d uh, depression and that kind of thing, um, that might be a good thing to check out. Now, we haven't talked too much about mindfulness or insight practice while we're here, but Vipassana practice uh, is the second core Buddhist meditation. The Brahma Viharas are, the suite of Brahma Viharas are very important. Uh, insight meditation, also called mind mindfulness, uh, also called Vipassana, is the wisdom practice, the wisdom meditation, and it's very complementary to the Brahma Vihara practices. And in fact, uh, as we've been talking, when I've said to, to you folks something like, work with the hindrances, do Vipassana with them, I'm, I'm referring to using the, the techniques that are taught as part of Vipassana practice to work with the hindrances in metta. 
So it's a very powerful practice, and uh, your toolkit is not complete unless you have a, a good grounding in this. So rather than being daunted by the thought of having to learn a whole other kind of meditation, it's really more of an exciting kind of thing. <laughs> At least it's exciting to me. Uh, so, Mindfulness in Plain English by uh, Bhante Gunarantana is a great book. Anything by his is really quite wonderful. He's a Sri Lankan monk, in well into his 80s now. And then Joseph Goldstein, who is... What would we call Joseph at this point? Could we call him a patriarch? I guess we could call him a patriarch. Although I, I, he'd probably laugh if he said that to him. But um, has written a wonderful new book called Mindfulness, which is basically based on a collection of talks that he has given on uh, retreat to retreatants. So if you're already familiar with uh, Vipassana practice, that would be uh, a really good book to check out. It might be a little over the head of people who don't know anything about that yet. Now for an overview of the Buddhist path and Buddhist psychology, The Wise Heart by Jack Kornfield is a wonderful book. So it's very accessible, but it's actually quite comprehensive when you look at it closely. So he has a lot in there and also a lot of illustrating stories and he's quite the master teacher. If you're interested in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, remember I began my first Dharma talk, I think I did, talking about how this practice of metta fits into the overall Buddha's schema of the liberation of the mind, and I talked about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So a good book about the Four Noble Truths is Dancing with Life by Philip Moffat, who is a teacher at mostly at Spirit Rock. He teaches at IMS also. He used to be the uh, managing editor, I think, or something like that at uh, Esquire magazine. And um, The Noble Eightfold Path by Bhikkhu Bodhi is a great book for those of you who have some grounding and you know, some basic framework with the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. It's quite a brilliant book. It has a lot, a lot of context, and it's only probably less than 100 pages, I would, I would think. So those are books. And then as far as uh, magazines and things, I think you've probably seen most, most of them out on the table there. There's Tricycle, Shambhala's Son, and uh, in there's Inquiring Mind. There's uh, Buddha Dharma, which is a little bit more scholarly, but not particularly dense. And then there's a new magazine out called Mindful. Has anybody seen that magazine, Mindful? Yeah. Which is designed to be ultra accessible. So it's really uh, talks about the 
practical applications of, of uh, the simplest form of mindfulness uh, in secular society. So a lot of interesting um, little snippets in there about what different people are doing with uh, the application of mindfulness. And John Kabat-Zinn is the, the cover boy this month. Uh, I also understand that either Time or Newsweek's cover story right about now is on mindfulness, right? That Buddha, what do you know? <laughs> oh my god, that kind of makes you get me giggle a little bit, but it's good. It's good. I'm, I'm glad we're. I'm glad it's mainstreaming. I can't tell you, you know, 35 years ago, how, what an oddball you were if you were into this kind of thing. <laughs> well, Marcia would know. <laughs> A few others of you would know too from your own experience how odd you really, people really thought you were. Um, resources online. Dharma Seed is, of course, dharmaseed.org. Many, many Dharma talks are uploaded to Dharma Seed every week, and hundreds of thousands of downloads from there. It's free. So you can listen to, you could listen to Dharma talks 24-7 for the rest of your life and never exhaust the supply of Dharma talks on Dharma Seed. And you can search by teacher, uh, and I think you can search by topic. So, in institution you can, so you could search like IMS or Spirit Rock or Mountain Hermitage. Okay. So there you go. And not all talks that teachers give are always uploaded. So we always have the option as teachers, since it is our work, to say, no, I don't want it published, or I just want it restricted to retreatants only. So some of my talks I have restricted just to people on retreat or not had uploaded at all because, as you can imagine, like some of the most meaningful, some of the deepest kinds of talks that might be given can involve things that are quite personal and can involve things that involve people other than the individual. So like the night I was talking about my sister biting my fingers, <laughs> I think I'll count on her for, for giving... Uh, me that reference if she ever comes across the talk. But, you know, some things you just really wouldn't want to have up there forever for anybody to recirculate. So, uh, Audio Dharma is another one, another resource. Yeah? All of the talks that Winnie and I have given will be up on the Mountain Hermitage website. Yeah. I think you told us today. Oh, I do? I think you did. <laughs> They're all going to be on the Mountain Hermitage website. Um, and I think the instructions, too. Yeah. And the guided meditations and everything. So Sounds True has some interesting things as well. They're, they're generally, uh, you know, for charge. But they've got some, some interesting things occasionally. Occasionally they'll have, like, online retreats. And Tricycle will sometimes have online retreats as well. 
And BCBS, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, is going to be developing an online offering of uh, a number of different talks of a more scholarly nature. So Andy Alensky, who is the scholar in residence, a lot of his work is going to be uploaded in the foreseeable future there. So if we're going to talk about retreat centers, where you can go to do retreats, IMS, the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, is, we must all agree, the flagship. So it was the first founded institution and for a long time was, was the only major retreat center. Now, uh, for, I don't know, maybe 20 years or so, Spirit Rock in Marin, uh, in uh, Woodacre, California, which is Marin County, is another large retreat center in the San Francisco Bay Area also offers excellent retreats. So if, if you were going to be looking for retreats, those were, would be two places to, to check. And they have retreats all the way from something like, you know, a long weekend for beginners to um, a three-month retreat every fall at uh, IMS and a two-month retreat every year at Spirit Rock for experienced practitioners. And you know a number of different shorter retreats and theme theme retreats. The Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, which is also in Barry, also has retreat slash study programs of a variety of things. So you might find something there like mindfulness and education, or a retreat for psychologists. That's kind of a combination of practice and uh, lay application. So they do some interesting programming. And I'm plugging them because I'm on the board of directors. And because they do good things. Cloud Mountain in Washington State. It's um, Castle Rock, I believe, has classic Dharma. Relatively small scale. I would guess their capacity is, what, maybe 30, would you guess there? Um so that would be, as they said to me when they asked me to teach there, that they were interested in uh, the teachings of the Buddha, not Buddha and anything else, not Buddha and yoga, not Buddha and <laughs> psychology, not Buddha and... You know, they wanted the teachings of the Buddha, so you'll get that there. The Bhavana Society in West Virginia offers uh, retreats free of charge. So they adhere 100% to the Donna model. So for that, all you need to do is get yourself accepted and get there. And that's uh, that's Bonte Gunarantana's place, the guy who wrote Mindfulness in Plain English. So it, it has a monastic character to it. So those, those are some of the major ones. And, and there are a number of smaller ones as well. If you're looking for a Sangha, a community of people to practice with, there's some major ones now, mostly on the two coasts. So some of the places where there are major Sanghas are New York City. Uh, Gina Sharp is um, the main person there, but a lot of other people teach as well. Washington, D.C., that's Tara Brock and Jonathan Fauster, the guiding teachers. And they've got a ton of stuff going. If 
you're ever in the Bay Area. It's very extensive community programming and uh, a number of these different large sanghas are also hmm? no in the Washington area. A lot of these uh, major sanghas are, are now uh, starting to offer like MBSR mindfulness-based stress reduction programs as kind of the outer ring of their programming. That's starting to happen more often with the more classical dharma and the de- deeper teachings, the more intensive practice being held closer to the core. Minneapolis uh, has a large sangha. San Francisco, of course. The East Bay, East Bay Sangha, is a wonderfully diverse sangha. It, um, it's composed largely of people of color and uh, LGBT people and white allies. Uh, Larry Yang and Spring Washam are some of the people that, that teach there. So, Seattle, <laughs> you know about Sims? Seattle Insight Meditation Society. Capitol Hill. They meet in the Episcopal Church there. So they have a very active, large active uh, sangha there with Rodney Smith as the, the main teacher. So they're definitely a resource. L.A., uh, Trudy Goodman and, um, and others. Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts as well. Cambridge Insight Meditation Society. So those are some of the big ones. And then around the country, there is a proliferation of smaller sanghas. Some of them are teacher-led. Some of them are basically just organized by um, members of the community. So, for instance, there's one in Northampton, Massachusetts, that has been running for 25 years on Donna with all volunteers. They rent a, a space in a yoga studio uh, on a Sunday night, and they'll invite different local teachers to come to come and teach. So they don't really have a resident teacher. They have a group of people they uh, they ask to teach. So that's a model, and that's even a model you could use to start something for yourself if if you're in a place that doesn't have anything. You could put something together with a uh, a notice in a few places, maybe on Meetup, maybe in your your local alternative um, newspaper, maybe in uh, go to your local Unitarian church, which interestingly enough frequently has meditation groups these days. You could download a talk, put out a put out a Donna basket, download a talk, have a agreed reading. Have tea after, form your own community, make something happen. So the last piece I want to want to talk about is teachers. How to find one. This is this is frequently a a question that's asked at the end of the retreat. How do I how do I get a teacher? So there's a few things about this. One is you might want to clarify why you want one. Because maybe you don't want a teacher. Maybe it's fine to have teachers 
a number of people to learn from without there being necessarily any particular affinity or commitment to working with a particular one. And that can be really a, a wise thing to do, at least for an extended period of time, until you get a sense of what the Dharma scene is, what kind of areas of interest you have, what you want to learn, and get a sense for who particular people are. Because when you're working with a teacher individually, they can be a really fine teacher, but there's some kind of energetic mesh that seems to really help facilitate it working. You know, it's kind of like you can marry anybody as long as they're okay in a certain kind of way, and it works well enough, but it might not be optimal. So, you have to figure out what you want to learn. You know, what, what are you interested in? Are you interested in deep concentration? Are you interested in lay life practice? Are you interested in, in metta? Are you interested in insight practice? How, how are you holding it? Are you, are you imagining that you would want to be going on like long, deep retreats? Or, or are you more interested in, in figuring out how to apply the Dharma to your day-to-day life. Not that these things are mutually exclusive, but it can make a difference in terms of who you gravitate towards. Then, there's a whole piece about role clarification. What exactly are you looking for from this person? So, a and I'll speak very freely from the teacher's side of this. Uh, so I'll give you the inside story. I'll give you the inside scoop. It's not often, often disclosed, but I'll tell you because we're friends now after five days. <laughs> I know you and you know me. So sometimes people want to go to a teacher when they're in, uh, they need basic emotional support. Right, So they're looking for basic emotional support like you would get from a, a dear friend or, a, or from a therapist. So that's not what most teachers can offer you. Right? So the teacher can offer you the Dharma and support in the application of the Dharma in your life and the support that a decent... Um, Metafilled human being can offer to another, but it's you can't go to a teacher with all your needs, <laughs> okay? <laughs> because we sense that <laughs> we sense that, and we go, oh, I don't think so. Have you tried? <laughs> so uh, you should know that. Then another thing is some teachers work with individual students, and some some don't. So. I would be a, a little cautious, I won't say this as a universal, but I w- would be a little cautious about teachers who solicit individual students kind of generically, like I'll work with, do you want somebody to work with? I'll work, you know, I work with people, you know, 
I, I would just watch that a little bit. But that's that's just me. So if you've found a voice that you really resonate with, and you may find that by going on retreat with somebody or by list, coming across an article somebody's written or by listening to talks on Dharma Seed and, I don't know, the voice is intelligible to you. You can understand what they're saying. It seems like it's on your wavelength. There, there's something about it that seems gives you confidence that you might be able to learn something via this particular person. Then a next step would be probably to go to a retreat that this person is teaching where you're going to be able to work with them individually. So some retreats you may go to depending on how big they are and the length they are, for instance. You may not get individual interviews. You may not actually be able to have a one-on-one with a teacher. So you would want to be able to check out that piece. But you would go on retreat with this teacher and work with them individually there and probably more than one retreat. And at, at a certain point when, you know, there was recognition between the two of you that <laughs> they recognized you, <laughs> you know, um, and there was a felt connection, it would be up to you to broach the topic with them. So, and you might have somebody say no. So, if they say no because they don't work with individual students, then it would be fine just to to leave it at that and not have your feelings hurt. (laughs) I know it can be kind of hard, you know, if you go to somebody and say, you know, will you work with me? And they say, well, I'm afraid I can't can be feel kind of vulnerable. But some people don't. In fact, a lot of teachers don't. I mean, the chances of you, for instance, being able to become an individual student of, like, Sharon Salzberg or, you know, some of the people that are really well-known teachers are, are probably about zip. Not because they don't, aren't metafilled. It's just there's, there's so much demand on their time. Now, of, of the people who do accept individual teachers, you, you may need to ask them more than once. And why do I say that? Because it's not an unusual thing at all for, to have students on retreat ask a teacher to, and it'll sometimes be along the lines of something like, will you be my teacher? And then they never follow up. With the teacher, I in fact there's there's one uh, senior teacher who who told me once that he's never had anybody who asked him to be his teacher on retreat ever follow up with them. <laughs> so so you, you yogis have kind of a bad <laughs> reputation in this department, right? So you may need to overcome this this uh, skepticism, right? I ha- have another Dharma friend of mine who told me that uh, at at his the very first time he ever had an encounter with a particular very senior Dharma teacher, he asked him if he would be his teacher. You know, will you be my teacher? And he said that the teacher looked at him and said, well, you know, you, you probably want to do a couple retreats first. <laughs> right? So it was a premature request. So th- there's a certain amount of sincerity evaluation that's going to be 
going on on the part of the teacher if you make that kind of request. Just so you know. They want to know that you're, you're serious. So, and that's, yeah, that's a vulnerable thing. You may have to ask more than once. Some people had to ask the Buddha three times to get teachings. <laughs> so, I mean, what it does is put it back in the hands of the student because it, it poses a question to you. Well, are you really serious about this? Or, you know, is this a momentary uh, um, thing? And then at a, at a certain point, there'll be a discussion about what the basis of working with the student is. So it'll be, and it would be very wise on the part of the student to actually be the person who raises that question. How do, how do you work with individual students? And you might want to ask them, um, do you charge to work with individual students? Um, you know, how, how often would we be communicating? If the teacher doesn't raise any specifics about compensation, then that probably means that they work on a Donna basis. But you should be the one that raises that question with them. Because for a lot of people who really try to hold the Donna uh, tradition, they're not going to say, how much money are you going to give me? But it's part of the understanding that you need to carry as a student that this is a generosity economy. So if you're going to someone, uh, an individual asking them to work with you as an individual, you're asking something from them, right? You're asking a substantial commitment from them to you as an individual. And it's appropriate for there to be an offering made to the teacher. So you would, you would show yourself well to, to raise that point with them if there's no conversation initiated by the teacher about that. And some individual teachers do charge a set amount. Right? They will be upfront about about what it is, right? So it's, you know, this is partially about resonance between you and another person and their availability. And if somebody does say, say no to you, you know, don't take it, take it too much to heart. It could be they just have too much going on and don't feel that they could really offer the, the care or attention to you that they wish to. Or it could be that they have an intuitive feeling that you might be better served by working with somebody else. So that's about the individual teachers. So we've covered a lot of territory here, all the way from reflecting on the retreat to exiting the retreat to resources from the retreat to teachers and the world of finding a teacher and having a teacher and all the rest of that. Is there any anything that I've left unaddressed that you would like to me to talk about? Yeah. 
terms of when we go back into the world and say we want to do our meta practice, mm -hmm. um, do you do you think it's it's um, I don't know just in terms of almost you know keeping the momentum going? Mm -hmm. um, is it good to first of all, like when you're actually doing it, kind of almost chant it, or just you know to or just I would experiment with both and see what works. But you're raising an important point, which is the the keeping of momentum. So, you know, sometimes we have an idealism about practice and how much we're going to practice. You know, we come off a retreat and it's like, I'm going to sit for two hours a day, I'm going to sit an hour in the morning, and I'm going to sit an hour in the, in the evening. And some people do that. Some people can make that kind of commitment and their life is set up so that they can, uh, they can carry that through. And those people usually know they're that kind of person, right? They know they're the kind of person that has kind of like some kind of iron capacity to set a target or set a resolve and actually do it. Most of us aren't, aren't like that. So I would say it's, it's probably more important, more useful, more beneficial to say, I am going to do this practice for uh, 20 minutes a day and I'm going to do it in the morning before I go to work and then actually do it than it would be to say, well, I'm not going to do it during the week because I'm too busy at work, but on the weekend I'll get caught up and I'll you know, do an hour. Uh, so, so keeping that thread alive um, in the mind. And another major suggestion that I'd make is to incline the mind to notice it when it's there. To incline the mind to notice when metta is there. Because we know that the effect of mindfulness, which is what would be in play when the mind is know knowing when mindfulness is there, when compassion is there, or when mudita is there, when equanimity is there, the effect of the mind knowing that is to strengthen that factor of mind, to increase its strength in the mind and increase the frequency of its arising. So if you can catch yourself having metta, mm -hmm. compassion, mudita, equanimity in the course of daily life, that's really skillful practice. So... I, when I was putting this talk together, I, I was thinking about the number of people we have here who work uh, in some kind of service capacity, whether that's that's teaching yoga or whether that's being a a nurse or a psychologist or a, a, a physician, and you know the other kinds of work that that people do, whatever kind of work you do, whatever kind of life you you have. There's a regular kind of interaction you might tend to have with people. So what do I mean by that? Well, so in the, in the case of a nurse, say the case of a nurse, you, you have a parade of people coming to you that you work with individually. Right? If you only adopted the practice of, as they walk in the room, you look at them and say to yourself, May you be well and happy with presence of mind. You would be doing meta practice all day long. 
all day long. Right? As your yoga students come in the studio, as they, you know, set up on the mats, as you look at them with presence, may you be well and happy to yourself. Right? The same thing with other people that, that you're working with, you know, kids you're seeing in the hospital. Just a moment of full presence. May you be healthy and at ease. One internal phrase done with presence, but you would wind up doing it many times a day. Right? Many times a day. Somebody coming into your frame shop, right? May you be well and happy. May you be safe. May you be at ease. Right? Go walking... Walking into into work, right, where you're a fundraiser, walking in from the car, opening up the door, may we all be safe and happy. Right, so there's a way that we can carry these, but it's a question, can we remember to carry it? Can we remember to carry the thread through the day? Because it's not so hard to do it if we remember to do it. Right? When the nurses come to the house, may you be healthy and may you be at ease. You know, may you find joy and peace of mind. Whatever it is, these regularly occurring events, these people that we see all the time. So that's a way you can end some of the duality that we tend to have about doing these kinds of practices. Where we think of it as we're on retreat and we're doing the practices, or we're sitting in meditation and we're doing the practices, and then the rest of the time you know, is like wasted space as far as doing the practices, but it doesn't have to be that way, not at all, not at all. So the more we can integrate it, the more overall practice time we have, the more alive it it becomes to us. So it takes developing the, the commitment, because you'll forget to do this many, many times. I had a a woman uh, recently on retreat, and she said um, that she used to have a daily meta practice, but she she couldn't do it anymore because her she had had uh, serious surgery, I think, like a hip replacement or something, and now she had to walk. 45 minutes a day or something as as part of having this done and she said she didn't you know, she had a very busy professional life and that she couldn't do both things and now she had to do the walking and and what could what could you know I suggest and I said well the best thing is don't think of it as two different things think of how you can bring the two together so what would it, it be like for instance if if you turned your walking into uh, when you did your metta practice, so that in doing the walking, you're generating the metta phrases as you walk. Not that this would be an easy thing to do. This would be a challenging thing to do because the mind would go into its default state. The eyes are opening. You're moving around, and then the tendency would become what the tendency is when we're walking, usually, which is. It's kind of dead time, and so the mind is lost in its default state and is going all around. But this woman was a very disciplined kind of person. I said, you'll, you'll have to work at it. You'll have to 
have to stop and start many times, probably for quite a while in doing this. When you lose the thread, stop and just re-establish it. You'll have to do it many times and you'll have to have patience in order to be able to and willing to stop and start many times. But over time, you'll be able to bring the meta practice to the mandatory <laughs> daily walk. If you're committed to it and if you have the patience to really establish that as the, the new way of practicing. So this all goes in the direction of not making two out of things not seeing it as our regular life, and then there's our practice thing. There's actually only one life happening. So how, how can we bring them together in a way that's really workable, where we can infuse our, our daily activities with the blessings of these states and the understanding that we've developed here? Hmm. So I think that's probably enough. Can I ask just a technical question? Sure. You know if there's some place you can access the Meta Chance online? Yeah, that's probably on Dharma Seed, isn't it? I think you can just Google Meta Chant and about seven or eight selections come up and you can find the one you like. Mm-hmm. And we'll have uh, have some time tomorrow for any leftover questions. There's so much in the way of resources out out there now, it's almost a question of editing it down and finding it. It's not exactly like picking through the Dewey Decimal card system anymore, right? I mean, there's all the online offerings, all the... all the books, all the... all the talks, all the... all the teachings. Of course, the main question is, do we put them into play in our own minds? Do we assimilate them in our own minds? Because that's really where the, the growth comes. Um, the rest of it is, is the prep work for the assimilation, but it's actually the assimilation that changes us on that kind of cellular level. So that's, that's enough for now. Let's do the sharing of blessings chant. Recording this for Mountain Hermitage, you know. <laughs> Should I use a pitch pipe? <laughs> okay, you know this. This is all about the spirit of it. This doesn't isn't anything about how you sound. So don't worry. <clears throat> Through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, 
May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, May all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind, with mindfulness and wisdom, Austerity and vigor, may the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support through the supreme power of all these. May darkness and illusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.